Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from uh, Montecito, California. Today, before I begin, I want to remind you that there is a uh, there is a, uh, a website called wealthformula.com that is associated with this particular podcast. And that's where you want to go if you want to sign up for all of the resources associated with this show and this community. Specifically, I want to make uh, make you aware that there is a group called the Investor Club, which is for accredited investors, basically people who qualify for it based on their income. And that's where private uh, deals happen. And um, I'm drawing your attention there because we have a lot of end of the year stuff coming for tax purposes. And if you are a accredited investor, you might want to get onboarded there sooner rather than later. By the way, we will be discussing one of the opportunities uh, that uh, is an end of the year opportunity in this podcast. Although I will say, I'm not sure if it's even open by the time this thing uh, airs. Okay, so let's talk about kind of where we are here. Um, And I wanna talk a little bit about history, right? Uh, The financial meltdown of 2008, 2009, well, it feels kind of like ancient history, right? And like the tragedies that happened long ago, they feel more uh, historical and less emotional. Now, I remember years back going to Pompeii in Italy, and and that was years ago, and seeing people turned into stone from Mount Vesuvius uh, erupting and the ashes and all that. that, that, And it must have been absolutely horrific. But at the time, it made, uh, but it seemed like more of a museum than the scene of an awful, horrific natural disaster. And frankly, that's the way I think that most people see 2008 as well as a time of ancient history. But for many, it was a very emotional time. Uh, But for those who stuck to their guns and took advantage of blood in the streets, they thrived for more than a decade afterwards. You know, a very good friend of mine is an incredibly successful entrepreneur in the real estate space. And at the time, he was essentially flipping multi-million dollar houses. I mean, everybody, I mean, I shouldn't say flipping because it makes it sound cheap. This guy was buying houses and creating these masterpieces. And he was a household name in Los Angeles. And every famous person wanted a house that he designed. But like many successful real estate people, he got hit hard during that time and lost a lot of money. It was also during that time that he was shifting into hotels. But you know they were initially, uh, I think, uh, a little bit frothy. So he avoided. But then in 2010, he started seeing these incredible opportunities. And at that point, he didn't really have any money. He needed to raise some capital. And no one wanted to invest uh, in, in, in what he was offering, despite his incredible track record. 
Like, I mean, he's, this guy was just creating, he was doing incredible work, but nobody wanted to invest with him. Bottom line is, even though things were at a steep discount, people were afraid. So fast forward today, that same guy, my buddy, ends up doing everything on his own in the last, you know, 20, or I don't know how long, 15 years, 14 years since that happened. And, uh, you know, he's in the middle of a $100 million 1031 exchange, right? That's not with investors, that's just by himself. And that's just one of his hotels. My point is that, uh, that time for buying that 2000 time, that 2010 is around the corner again. Uh, investment real estate is being hit hard. Uh, and it's very hard to keep calm, especially when you're losing some money uh, yourself, uh, to wait for those opportunities that that come back before you. I mean, my guest today, uh, he he actually saw uh, and he was in real estate during that, that time as well and learned a lot of lessons. And it's probably why uh, his uh, company did, has actually done extremely well during this time. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about where we are in the real estate uh, cycle, uh, why it looks like 2010, and um, you know why you might uh, seriously start thinking about mobilizing and deploying capital uh, now rather than sort of shrinking up and hiding in the closet waiting to turn to stone. Uh, by the way, uh, again, if uh, if this opportunity is still open, you can check it out at JoffreyCapital.com. And uh, that is a, a new site where, um, you know, some of our new partnerships are going to be. And uh, I'm not sure if it's still open, but go check it out and watch the webinar. At the very least, it's a Reg D506C. And uh, that's where uh, uh, that means that anybody can look at it, but you can only invest in it if you're an accredited investor with a third-party verification letter. So... Uh, when we come back, my uh, new partner, Chris Faulkner. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear, Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, uh, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Chris Falk. Now, Chris is a CEO of a company that uh, is a new partner of ours at, at uh, uh, Wealth Formula, and uh, it's called the CAF Companies. Uh, they uh, own and operate 72 multifamily properties, just a tremendous track record, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But Chris, uh, welcome, welcome to the show. Welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Buck. Thanks. So you got your start. Uh, I just wanted to sort of introduce you to everybody. You got your start as a as a GE guy. What does that mean to do a GE guy? Because I know what it means. It means you're like super conservative and and you do everything by the books and you know all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. But to you, what does it mean? And what it what what what? How did that shape you? Well, let me just start off by saying GE got their start in the early 90s, in the RTC days. So they were smart. They bought all these properties from the RTC for 10 cents on the dollar. Then fast forward, you know, 30 years, 
and they effectively maxed out their credit card. And GE's uh, real estate is no longer a business. But while I was there, I was there for 15 years. And I mean, it was it was intense. It was probably the most fun I've ever had in real estate. You know, people always ask me, hey, you know, how is CAF? How is GE? I would do GE over again. I would not do the last 13 to 14 years over again. Once was enough. But yeah, yeah. At GE, I mean, when I first started there, I, I didn't even know what NOI was. And I just was happy to be there. It's a, it's a strong institution. So I did everything from underwriting. I was a loan analyst, uh, a securization officer, which meant, you know, we would securitize our loans and put them with Bear Stearns or Bank of America's shelf. And we would, we would sell those off, which is primarily what Freddie Mac does. Then, you know, I was uh, asked to join the equity team. And, and what we did basically, Buck, was we looked for sponsors like CAF. And all the money that, that GE did in, you know, investing in, in selling refrigerators, we would then deploy into real estate. And we were the largest of all the different GE divisions. The real estate division was 27% of the company. Well, that's that's an interesting thing because I think when people think GE, they're like, well, yeah, he's a, he's a refrigerator guy who ended up in yeah. real estate. Well, how does that work? So I mean, it, we, we were, we were the, the world's, we're the largest non-bank lender in the world. Okay. Yeah. We had billions to deploy. So what was really great about it was I had several tours of duty that just, I learned so much along the way. And you don't realize how much you learned until you left and get into the real world. And it allowed me to have, you know, instead of having a conversation with an institution where they're having to explain things, we can, we can, we can, we can get one another, which is super helpful. Um, but what, yeah, it was, it was an incredible experience and one that, uh, you know, that, that I, I, I'm, grateful for because I know a lot of other people haven't had that experience. I mean, it was the GE mafia is what we call it. Everybody that kind of scattered the four winds. Um, yeah, everyone's doing well. You know, everyone's kind of picked up their own little niche and doing different things. But the, 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 what you learn there is is invaluable. How long were you there? About 15 years. 15 years. And then um, I guess one of the questions I have is like, so what are some of the principles I think like when you when you look at your experience and what molds you now and uh the maybe some of the principles that you're using because you've been very you know cf cf and we'll get to this in a minute it's been quite successful and and specifically without you know a, a lot of downside or loss and things like that what are you doing that you think that maybe it helped to be at a company like ge i mean is it discipline is it you know, it, it, I was going to say that exact word, Buck. I mean, yeah. the discipline that you are required to have to survive and thrive in that environment. Uh, you know, you if you, you know, I always say it, you like to walk, but it's best to run. The people that would walk, they didn't last long. Okay. And we would develop, you know, a team culture that was, was pretty unique. And everybody was very sophisticated, disciplined, and stuck to their knitting. And so we could count on each other and we learned from each other. Uh, but it was definitely an intense environment. That 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 one right there probably is a crucible that that defines you know how you you know will succeed in that in that company because every time you step into the committee to to pitch a deal to discuss uh, a strategy of, of a portfolio, all eyes are on you, and every word you say has merit or not for your future. Yeah. So you can really yeah. impair your career in just one meeting. Right. Right. So. Uh, 15 years there how did you when i guess when did you decide and why did you decide to build a company uh that ultimately becomes caf 
and uh, and why, why multifamily real estate? Man, so when I when I was an underwriter, I would underwrite retail, multifamily, self storage, industrial, and office. I mean, I was a jack of all trades, but I loved multifamily. That one made the most sense to me. So there's there's that answer. But in 2005, when I started, when I was asked to join the equity team, you know, they're like, hey, look, if, if things go south, you, you've, you've developed a skill set that you can take outside of the company. In 2008, it became very obvious to me that I was going to need to just, you know, create that. I've always wanted to own my own company, start a company, be a part yeah. of it. And in 2008, I began to, to really uh, get the wheels in motion for CAF. And so there was a, there was a guy that um, I just happened to, to uh, join the board of trustees at my church. He's a very, very, very wealthy man. With my resume and his balance sheet, we were financeable. So in 2008, he's like, let's go buy some deals. I told him I wasn't quite ready. Fair. You know, I just, well, I wish I would have said yes at the time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we, we spent uh, the better part of two years working together. And in 2010, we, uh, we, we, we got our first deal. Yeah. What did you learn um, during the last downturn? down in 2008. What, what did you learn from that specifically? I think you referenced it a little bit, just yeah. uh, just being there at that time. So now, those were some dark days. We had a lot of, you know, obviously GE was doing a lot of layoffs um, and, you know, a lot of good people uh, left, had to go, were asked to leave. Um, so from a, from a humanity perspective, it was tough watching people you've effectively grown up with. Uh, and, and there wasn't a lot of opportunity out there. So people were really just kind of right. going into a black hole. From a business perspective, what I, and this is honestly, this is kind of what, what I see going forward as well. But if you recall, in the early 2000s, all the way up to about 2007, there was really no lender discipline. I mean, it was wheels off. They were just writing loans left and right. And it was primarily the agencies. And uh, they were getting very, very careless. And of course, that's what created the downturn. And that vacuum, I mean, it, it, a lot a lot of sponsors went away. They'd give back deals. And, and I promise you, the lenders have a long memory. We had, we had to give, a, one of our sponsors had to give a property back. And in 2007 or eight, and I had lunch with this guy from Freddie Mac a year ago, and he listed the name of that property. So they remember. So, yeah. so there, there's, a, there's an incredible and, you know, intensity from a business perspective, we saw you know some of the some of the sponsors that we were lending money towards, right? Um, they they weren't they wouldn't pay their vendors, or they you know. So we saw a lot of people right. step in it, and it really gives you insight, visibility into how to navigate tough waters. So here at CAF, we have three former GE colleagues, and we uh, we hired a guy from Invesco that's been there for twenty five years. So we have a we have a lot of institutional you know mindset around here, a lot of a lot of resources to go back and you know hit rewind and say how did we handle that. Very, very valuable. And it gives you, I mean, look, I, I know that, that there's a lot of fear and capitulation the last, you know, call it 18 months. But when you've been there twice, I think, you know, at GE, um, it helps you, uh, you know, I guess there's a little bit more calm in the, in the midst of the, the crossfire. Yeah. And along that lines, I think it's, um, you know, one of the one of the reasons, I, you know, I certainly I was impressed with CAF and uh, wanted to, you know, get our uh, groups aligned here was the fact that I mean you, you're you're doing pretty well even in, in, in you know in, in these rough waters where it's not like you've had uh, any equity calls or anything. You're uh, tell us tell us about your portfolio. How big is it? How's it doing right now? 
Yeah, thank you. The, the portfolio is, is doing very well. I mean, look, I, I, I'm not a micromanager, but I'm a control freak. So I, I tend to, you know, things have to be pretty square for me um, yeah. when it comes to other people's money. And that's, we are first and foremost investors. So we, we take that mindset very, very seriously. But, you know, when we, we have, you know, as a, as a portfolio, we have 22,000 units. Uh, we just actually picked up a, a third party management deal today from another group that's gone under. Mm-hmm. So, so people are reaching out to us to kind of help write their own shifts. Um, but but the, the health of the, port, the portfolio is strong. We, we are, look, we were all about caps before caps was even a thing. We would, mm-hmm. because they were so cheap, we were putting caps on deals back in 2015, 16, 17. They were, they were so cheap. And then when we would sell a property, right, sl- you know, got a little, little higher and we would actually make money on, the, on just selling the caps. So the caps obviously helped us keep the portfolio in check. Mm-hmm. Um, we were buying below what the lender would require. Mm-hmm. So the lender required us to buy a three or four year per- percent cap. We were buying two. Yeah. And that, 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 that was worth it back in the day. So when we're marching forward, you know, to today, uh, it keeps our portfolio strong. We had the, you know, we just we had the insight to see the value of the caps, but also uh, operationally, um, one of the other reasons why the portfolio is doing so well is on the expense side of things. You know, yes, it is a nickel and dime business, but if you just mine the store, you know, you're going to get smoked in a market like this. So we have a very duplicatable, repeatable process that keeps our expenses super low. We actually pay our vendors so that they, you know, in times of trouble, you need friends. You need vendors right. that'll show up and, and take care of the work orders. Things will spiral out of control quickly. So the portfolio is doing well. Yes, we've, we've not had to do capital calls. Um, and, and, you know, we also team up with, with some pretty great other firms that help us become smarter ourselves. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. is one of our, one of our, one of our strong uh, yeah. partners in Goldman, and they we, they all have requirements, Buck. Yeah. So what is it like? Let me, and that's, I think that's a good place to be because like, you know, uh, it's uh, uh, your, your limited, your investors, your institutional investors include the likes of, you know, the, as you mentioned, Goldman Sachs, Cantor Fitzgerald, uh, and these, these types of big names. Uh, and, their expectations are significant. Um, one of the things that I think you and I talked that you talked about before, which I thought interesting, is um, is how working with companies like that, when 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 they're your investor, it sort of helps to elevate your game as well. Um, talk a little bit about that experience and how you know how that's made you guys better, because obviously. I mean, that's, that's not an easy task to keep these guys happy. They, they impose their structures on us. When you elect to do business with an institution, you, you are electing to re- you know, release a little bit of what you're normally used to doing, and that's business as usual. For example, when we do our accounting, we have it now, we had to restructure it a little bit to be on par and comply with, with Goldman's and Canna Fitzgerald's accounting standards. Which is which is a win for the investor. I mean, it, you're getting a gold-plated coffee maker, you know, and it's it's really interesting because all of the systems and controls that they have that are regulated by the government or by the, the banking jurisdictions are imposed upon us. So then the investor can take comfort in the monthly report. Where's the money going? Are the GLs being actually looked at? You know, all the compliance is there. So 
yeah, we make each other's, we, they, re, they rely heavily on us to bring them good stuff. And when we can bring a Goldman to the table or someone like that, or just the name, we see the good deals, Buck. And it's not only for a Goldman deal, but those, that kind of naming convention. Look, when we, when we were at GE, we called it the meatball, you know, the, the, the right. logo. So you know, take that meatball off your chest. You're just like everybody else. But those relationships I had while I was there allowed us to uncover uh, some pretty, pretty strong relationships here at CAF. How do you see uh, the market we are in right now? I mean, I guess, you know, we know rising interest rates, uh, lack of liquidity in the markets. What what is your what's your view on this market as a potential buyer, potential seller? What what how are you approaching it? I think we still have about another you know, a year and a half or so of the shadow of the, of the rate caps, because keep in mind, you know, you have to, you have to escrow for those things and, and potentially buy and you're going to get stuck. And so I think that's going to be a little bit of a hangover for the next at least 18 months. What I do see is this is very indicative of where I think we were in the, the markets were in 09, call it maybe 10. Mm-hmm. It was just really, really bad. But in 10, people were starting to think about thinking about it again. And there's still, and I heard, I heard, you know, another, benefit of having gone through something like this at an institution is you get to talk to a lot of different sponsors and most of them are saying we don't want to be the first ones in and i'm thinking that's exactly what you want to be when the markets are in a situation where there's opportunity you want to go in and capitalize first otherwise you're going to it gets crowded when everybody runs so you know we we see the markets today as yes they're not liquid so you have to really hunt and peck for the right deals and thankfully we have uh you know, some, some relationships where we can, we can call some, some individuals or, or the broker community. I mean, we embrace the brokerage community in a big way. Um, they are important to us and we can pick up a phone and say, what do you got? And if we like it, we'll move on it. But right now, Buck, it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's clearly not frothy, but I think, you know, where we are today, when you do have a deal that you have control over is because there's a story. And yeah. it's usually really good. And, and, and that's a interesting thing too, is that like with the lack of liquidity on the market, um, there, there's, there seems to be a, this big advantage, which I, I liked about your, um, your positioning in that, in that you're working with the companies with a lot of property. And some of those you're working the capacity of being the owner operator and some you are, you know, you're managing the asset. And so you're interfacing with a lot of very big landlords and that uh, is giving you potential deal flow access, right? Is that? Yeah, is that it right? does. It absolutely does. And, you know, we, we get first bite at the apple. Um, there's a deal, you know, the answer is yes. Well, uh, on more than one, uh, with more than one partner. So we're, we're seeing, obviously there's one uh, partner we have that just is electing to move on from, the equity side of business. And that's been great. We've had a great you know, disposition relationship with them. Uh, but there's a handful of others that they, uh, they, they know that we can move on a deal and that, that, you know, look, this is a one strike you're out business. So performing is everything. And, you know, much to our equities displeasure sometimes because we drill so far into the weeds to make sure we have a, you know, everything airtight, but that's how we get the good deals. That's how we get a name that, you know, fosters strength. So we can right. bring the good deals to the investors. Deals will trade, but the really good deals will trade to you know, a select group. We've learned. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. And that is a 
That's also, has that also been a benefit, I guess, on the sell side as well? I mean, you, you kind of have an idea of what buyers want, right? Like, so you can kind of position them and, and, uh, kind of get the most, uh, for your money when you're ready to sell. We, we, I call it the magic bubble. Every deal has a life, has a time to go. And, right. you know, we, you know, at CAF, we are a supreme fiduciary. And what I mean by that is we're not going to hold on to a deal for whatever, for a management fee or for employee headcount. We're not going to do that. We move, we, we, we don't always have major decision rights with Goldman Sachs or Canner or Carlisle or, you know, other opportunity funds. Sometimes they want to sell. We don't think it's the right time to sell. But we, you know, we're good soldiers. We're good partners. We will, we will do that because obviously we, you know, they're the major decision in that one area. But when it's time to sell a deal, it's time to sell a deal. Otherwise, you will get stuck. And uh, we, you know, we're opportunistic, so we want to make sure. I mean, our track record um, is 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 very strong. And yeah, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, it's it's for uh, a pretty for pretty darn conservative underwriting and that that kind of thing with you know, no capital call history, all that, your average returns are pretty darn good. What, what, what does that look like? So since we've, yeah, thanks. So since we've, you know, started, we've, we've, we've sold, I believe like 25 property or average 23% IRR to the LP, yeah. uh, almost, you know, one eight multiple. Uh, it's been, it's been a good, it's been a good run. Look, we've had some that are not, you know, great return, but on average is 23%. When I say not great, we're, we're still talking better than we underwrote, but it's probably in the 15% range, you know, as, yeah. and on a handful of occasions, but we've also had some 55 and 65% returns. Yeah. On average, you it's know, been very stable. Point out that IRR is actually, that would probably not, we usually think that in our group with annualized returns. So 23% is probably, I think we came up with about a 27% annualized return average. Uh, but with, uh, you know, with no loss. So that's, you know, that's uh, pretty significant. Um, <clears throat> the let, let me ask you this. What so where do you see uh, where do you see the where do you see the real estate market going over the next five years? And it, I've thought about this a fair amount, Chris, because you mentioned 2009, 2010. And, and people are like starting to think about getting back into real estate and stuff like that. And the first movers, uh, they actually ended up probably being the biggest winners at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, right now, it's just like, even when there's deals, it just seems like there is, there's still a reluctance to move. Uh what do you, I mean, how do you see this? Let's, let's play this out. You, you mentioned, uh, you know, the rate caps and that kind of thing over the next year or two, but what's, what are you guys looking at? What do you think's gonna, you know, what do you foresee in the next five years, not only for just the real estate market, but you know, how CAF uh, would, would uh, position themselves in that. So, you know, obviously five years, goodness, that's a, that's a, that's an eternity in, in real estate. Um, I mean, just looking back five years, what, you know, what all has transpired. Um, I, I think over the next five years, well, first of all, you, you're where we play, where we play in the Sunbelt States, you know, you're talking major inflow of, 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 of renters. You're talking housing prices, not coming down a whole lot. You're talking about interest rates, probably 
coming down for sure, but by how much nobody knows. Point being, we are going to have a robust renters pool. So, so as 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 a as a sponsor, as an owner of real estate, I love that. What I you know what you know, the lending community always has a strong footprint in the real estate deal. So, as an example, and as I mentioned, it was very very. There was no discipline in the in the early aughts. There was probably spot on discipline by the agencies and the teens. Uh, very impressed with how they were. They were not getting carried away. And what happened? Values were very stable. They increased very well uh, in the teens. It wasn't until things got real crazy when there were the bridge loans that, that came along that values really ramped up. Why? Because it was a means to an end. There was a lot of interest rates were so low, and people could use bridge loans to get away with any pricing. And so that was that's why right. You know, so what I see happening over the next five five years is. You have to, we, we are capitalizing on deals that, you know, either have a story or have an edge or have a relationship. And those three things is how, you know, it's really how we started uh, initially, but we've been through what I would say is the longest real estate cycle ever. I mean, it really started in 2010 and you know, yeah. probably finished what last year. So yeah. it's a 12 year cycle. Most cycles are, are, are much, much, much more precipitous. So, we, I think we're going to see, you know, a lot of, a lot of movement in, in 24. I think people are going to really start positioning, but what I think Buck is it's going to be real hard for the, for the new person to come in to the industry in, in a, in a yeah. profound way, I should say, uh, unless yeah. they already have all the equity in the world. But yeah. I think it's going, you still have a lot of money as you know, there's a ton of money out there. They just want to yeah. trust the source. And so I think you're going to see a lot of, you know, deals that are, you know, get done behind, uh, you know, that won't be necessarily marketed and, and there'll be beneficiaries for that. But overall, I think it's going to be a very, the lenders will be taking a very stable and conservative approach. And that's going to keep pricing as it should, growing in a, in a respectable manner. Um, liquidity, anybody's guess, it's just, I think people are ready to go. And as these loan maturities, but it's really the loan tests that are going to be, the determining factor of what hits the streets. And, and that is when, you know, you have to meet certain debt yield requirements. And if you don't qualify, you either have to pay that loan down or you have to give that loan back. And that's going to create a lot of excitement for people that are looking to buy. Yeah. Um, what the, What's your take on the uh, money on the sidelines right now too? That's the other element. Because if there's a lot less liquidity where's I mean, where's that money going i mean you're you're an institutional guy you know these guys um they have to deploy they're putting it in treasuries right now i mean treasuries are so high so yeah. it, it's an easy place to park money uh -huh. um but but man, greed ultimately and, and you know it curiosity intrigue it's all there real estate is a fascinating vehicle uh, you get the depreciation you know you there's all these things that are it, it's a tangible asset it's it's it, you know it appreciates during inflationary markets. So the money's there, you know, the money is also uh, growing in the form of treasuries. And so there will be a time when, when they're ready to go. Cause if, if, if interest rates, if the yield curve proves out, then there will be a time where it'll be much more attractive to get back into asset producing uh, assets. So. Well, and then one thing that's kind of interesting about that too, is, you know, um, somebody actually had said to me, said to me, you know, 
with interest rates uh, being high now, isn't now the time to sell? And actually, that's kind of backwards in a way, because if you're looking at it and if you're anticipating rates to go down, yeah. Yeah. that is actually going to drive up prices again. And, I think uh, we're going to see some cap rate compression for sure. Uh, right. And so, I mean, there's obviously a relationship there. It's not it's not pound for pound, but there is a relationship there. And and yeah, I I, I do agree. The, the trick though is if you know people say, well, you know, the smartest guy in the room will will, will proudly tell you that you know why would you fix rates when they're at their all time high? And I'm like, well, look, look, it's not like that. That's one that's one way of looking at it, I suppose. The re, but but what we like to do is look at the whole you know process of what we're dealing with. If I'm going to fix a rate, I'm doing this very same thing by putting a cap. On my on my deal anyway okay right. they're probably just as more just as expensive if not more yeah and there's it's risk right. mitigation there obviously that was like one of that's, the major that's the biggest issue it takes issue. the pressure off and you can right. you dial in some some uh, flexibility on the exit and you have effectively a floating instrument but with, that, right. with no risk right right and i mean ultimately that that philosophy or that approach has obviously proved successful and because some of these the times that we've been on now have been some of the toughest uh certainly um in, in the last decade easy you know there's just been uh, a lot of companies that because they were heavily into floating uh rates and you know got into some mm -hmm. trouble so so that is a that is a very good point and i think that's uh, something to think about I'm, i've i've advocated right now for sticking to to fixed uh, debt as well for the same reason, because at the end of the day, we don't know for sure if there's uh, still uh, as much as the yield curve is suggesting everything is going to go back down. I mean, it's it's good to have a little bit of a, a buffer zone if if there is, uh, you know, if there is some volatility there right. along the way. Yeah, I mean, I've got, the Fed has made it as clear as the Fed can make it that they're not going to raise rates. But what happens in between uh, with with you know the CPI and all the unemployment numbers, that's that's what moves the treasuries in yep. the absence of a hike. So, you know, we're keeping close tabs on that. But what I like, what I like, Buck, is is right now there's very few developers out there developing. They can't, they can't pencil. So what what you see going up is probably all that you're going to see for a while. What does that remind you of? Well, it reminds me of 2008, nine, and ten, and twelve, because they right. couldn't develop during that period. So we had a we had a, a shortage of real estate with more people. Coming in to to the markets that we like, yeah, I see, I see a very familiar path, and we we plan on capitalizing capitalizing on that for sure. And well, cer certainly looking uh, looking forward to doing that with you, uh, Chris, and uh, glad to have you as a new uh, partner for our, our investor group. And uh, for those uh, people do know that we do have uh, an opportunity actually that's live right now, and it's uh, it's effectively one of these stories about institutions needing to sell, you know, and an asset that is uh, is really in good shape and and uh, you know under we with even with new debt, essentially cash flows from day one. It's it's a great asset. So anyway, you'll I'm sure you'll hear more about that, and uh, we'll get some more information out to you. But Chris, I do want to thank you so much for being on Wealth Formula podcast and. Uh, you know, coming out and I guess meeting the community here. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. It's it's always it's always a pleasure to, to be with you. So thanks again. Thanks, Chris. We'll be right back. Self storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The wealth formula community. Well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self storage companies in the country. 
with an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And I do uh, want you to, again, go check out that uh, webinar at JoffreyCapital.com. If nothing else, you're going to learn something, learn about a new group and, uh, and a little bit about uh, this opportunity and, and, and everything else. Um, again, I do want to emphasize whether or not this opportunity is open or you participate. There is lots of other things coming up uh, as end of the year tax plays and that kind of thing. So go to WealthFormula.com and join Investor Club if you're an accredited investor and get onboarded. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.